And we open our Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians. Over this Sunday and the next three, we'll be looking at various passages in the New Testament to describe for us some basic questions, to look for answers to questions about our identity. Who am I? Where am I headed? What am I here for? What can I hope for? The passages will be connected by this theme, this theological truth of union with Christ, that we are in Christ, found in Him, identified with Him, saved by Him. And so we jump into the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, writing to new converts, those who who are formerly living lives for themselves, who have been rescued by God's grace. And so the apostle here in Colossians 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, asks this and answers this question for them. Really, who am I? What does it mean to be in Christ, to belong to Christ, to believe in Christ? So listen to the Word of God, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's bow in prayer. Father, with your word open before us, with your spirit active in our midst, with the hope of Jesus Christ in our hearts, Lord, transform us. That as we listen to your word, that we would not walk away from this encounter with your truth, the same people we were when we walked in. That we would delight in the glory of the gospel. We would confess our sins and put our trust in Jesus. Lord, where our faith is weak, strengthen us in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, let us see that in his death and in his resurrection, we have life. As we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus, who is our life, amen. Salvador was a Cuban spy sent to Miami as a mole in order to learn the military secrets of the United States government. But as he worked with his American contacts, he renounced his loyalty to Cuba. The story is recounted that Salvador turned himself into the the government, the United States government, and they offered him asylum, protection, and a new identity. The government then masterminded a murder of Salvador. Well, they would just make it look like he'd been murdered so that Cuban officials would assume the death of their spy. And that once this plan was carried out, then Salvador could be issued new documents, a new name, a new life. Now, we only know this story because it was declassified years later. An old life renounced, a new life given. But for it to work... It means leaving behind everything from your old life. You can't send grandmom a postcard from your new address. 
You can't swing by home to celebrate the old family traditions. To take on a new identity means leaving the past behind. The Apostle Paul uses the language of life and death to describe the experience of a Christian believer. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Your new identity changes what's happening in your life right now and guarantees your future. But it means you have to leave everything behind when you decide to follow Christ. Who you were has been changed by who you are in Christ. Look at the commands that the Apostle Paul gives here in Colossians 3. He, he in verse 1, says, Set your hearts on things above. Verse 2, he, he repeats the command with a, a slight variation. Set your minds on things above. He's described our identity with Christ, that you are raised with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And so he says, set your hearts, set your minds on things above. The contrast of, of looking up versus earthly things. It's this contrast between heaven and earth. But, it, but it's not really a, a geographic orientation of, like, where would I punch my passport to get to heaven? It's not, it's not where is heaven located. He, he's using this idea of looking up to the glory of God, to describe, look toward the, the kingdom rule and authority of God. The contrast is not here in physical terms, but between what is right and wrong. The, the ways of God in his goodness and the ways of the world in rebellion against God. Set your hearts, set your minds on the things above, the things of God. And of course, as he uses the language of, of heart and minds, he, he means more than just emotionally or even intellectually. It, it, the, the way that, that Paul uses this language, and especially that, that phrase there in verse 2, set your minds on things above, it's not just a mere intellectual knowledge that, okay, there is a God, I want to do what God has said. It's, it's set every part of who you are. The, the, the turn, the, the fundamental orientation of your will, your purpose, your desires from the ways of this world, turn it to follow the ways of God. Set your minds on things above. One commentator says that that, that language is, is talking about our minds, our aims, our ambitions, our whole outlook on life is to be centered on Christ. And the verses which follow, and, and we didn't read these this morning, but, but the verses which follow show that the contrast here is, is not just on, on what you know, but actually on then how you end up living. Because it, Paul, setting, setting the stage here, set your minds, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things, then will in verse 5 say, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Turn away from the sin in your life. In verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because of who you are, it, it changes the orientation of your life, the way that you will live. There is a, a direct command given to those who claim the name of Christ to change the way that we think, to reorient our desires, our thoughts. Now, of course, here are questions about right and wrong. 
Should I do this or should I do that? Is this okay? Is that wrong? These kinds of questions force upon us even more foundational questions. I mean, how do I know what is right and wrong? Where does this moral sense even of good and evil come from? Alastair McIntyre is an emeritus professor of, of, of philosophy. And, and he, he says this. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer a prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? Or do you hear what he's saying? He says, I can only answer what am I to do if I know well, what story am I part of? Now, at a basic level, what he's saying is, I can only know my moral responsibility if I know my role in the situation. Am I a father, an employer, a, a neighbor, a friend? Am I part of a family? Am I part of a neighborhood? Am I part of a, a broader community in this situation? But at a bigger level, at a more fundamental level, what he's, what he's saying is, I can only know what I'm supposed to do if I know the big story of which I'm a part. Does the world have a good beginning? Is history going anywhere? Was I made by a good God? Now, questions about God, about faith, about who we are, these are essential if we want to know how we're to live, how we're to treat one another. So you, you might want to say, no, 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 I, we, I don't need to talk about those questions. Let's just, let's just agree on how, we gonna, how we're going to treat one another. But you can only know how you're supposed to act if you know who you are. Is there good? Is there evil? Are we going somewhere? Is there an end to this story? Is there a purpose? All of those kinds of questions get wrapped up in the question of what should I do? Because you can't know what you should do unless you know the story that you're a part of. And so Paul sets the contrast clearly here for the Colossians. A contrast between right and wrong, between the things above, which are the things of God, and earthly things, which are rebellion against God. It means you have to know how you relate to God and how you relate to your neighbors if you're going to know how to live. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes clear how we, how we are to understand who we are. We can only understand who we are if we understand who Jesus Christ is. I mean, you, you, you see it just even just at a glance, just looking at this little paragraph in your Bibles. The, the title, the descriptor Christ, wasn't his given name, it's a, it's a title, like that he's a king, that he is the anointed one sent by God. It's, it's the word Messiah from the Old Testament now given to us in Greek. He is Christ. But it's, it's used, you see it, just glance there, in, in our four short verses, the title is used four times. Now, Greek works the, the way English does in this sense, that ordinarily you would give the proper title once, well, then you'd replace it with a pronoun at least once, but maybe even twice, or even all three of the other times. You could clearly say he or him the other times. That would have actually been the most natural way to say it, but Paul, for emphasis, uses the title four times. That you have been raised with Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, you will appear with him. Four times we hear this emphasis on his title. 
And look at, look at what's packed into these four short verses about who Jesus is and what he has done. We, we learn here that Jesus Christ died because you died with Christ. We learn that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because you have been raised with Christ. We learn that Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, that Jesus Christ will come again. And so that tells us the story of who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the Christ, God's anointed, chosen king who died in the place of sinners. The king who humbled himself to give his life for those that were living according to earthly ways and patterns. Those that had turned their attention from the things above to the things of this world to gather for themselves all that they could. Jesus Christ died for sinners. But Christ is not dead. He has been raised from the dead. And more than that, we're told here that the Christ, the King of God, sits at the right hand of God the Father above. He sits at the right hand of God in heaven. The, the right hand, the, the, the place of authority and power, the one who rules as the, the, the co-regent with God in heaven. And this is language that's familiar to readers of the Bible because it, it, it's, it's made explicit in Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David who was the king, the anointed king of Israel. But David says in, in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, so Yahweh in heaven speaks to his son, Jesus the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David then in the psalm describes the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is the king with all authority. The one whose armies will slay the nations who rebel against him. He's the one who sits at the right hand of God. But when he goes out in battle, God goes at his right hand. He has the very power and authority of God in heaven. Jesus Christ reigns at the right hand of God. And this king, we're told in Colossians 3, will appear. He is coming again in glory. What Paul is, is telling the Christian believers in, in Colossae, what he's explaining to us by the power of God's spirit, to answer this question, who am I? Who you are depends on what Christ did for you, not on what you can do for Christ. Now, you've, you've heard me say that, of course, this passage, when we understand who we are, it will change what we do. But, but you, you, we have to understand this fundamental question. My acceptance before God isn't dependent upon what I can do for him. It is dependent upon what Jesus Christ already did for me. He died, he was raised, he reigns at the right hand of God in heaven, and he is coming again. That is what is true, and that guarantees my position in Christ, with Christ. See, now, I think often we're glad for 
this story of grace. That we, we think, well, yes, I'm glad that God freely accepts sinners, even those who can't, who can't get themselves right. But I fear that sometimes we subtly shift into thinking, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of doing okay. I mean, like, I'm glad that there's grace for, for everybody else whose lives are a total mess, but I've accomplished some pretty good things for God. And so if we're measuring based on what you've done for God, well, then I think I might be okay. See, but that's a dangerous way to, to view. That's, that's not merely a, a slight shift in, in, towards selfishness. That's, that's distorting and reorienting the whole framework. That's saying instead of my acceptance in Christ is based on what he has done, that's saying my acceptance in Christ will be based on what I will do. See, that that throws out the gospel and tries to to lay claim to some sort of selfish authority as if, well, grace is good for you if you need it. But, well, I'm doing just fine. See, but our identity as a church is found in Christ, in who he is, in his glory. Not in the buildings or budgets, not even in the number of people who walk through our doors to hear the message, not even in the number of people who respond to the grace of God. Our identity is not found there. Our identity as a church is found in Jesus Christ. My identity as a pastor is found in Christ, not in ministry success, not in the structure or, or application of sermons. See, a, another pastor explains that, that once we understand that we are found in Christ, that we are with Christ, that what he has done is everything that we need, he says, well, then our identity in Christ gives us permission to rest. To just say the very next thing that's going to happen won't be by my power or strength. To stop and say, I don't have to keep running at full speed as if my acceptance depends upon my effort. You see, the the Christian life is, is, yes, I mean, the Bible, of course, uses language to describe it as a walk, even a race. But but really, the the posture of our hearts isn't saying, I can do it, I can do it. It's It's the throwing yourself down upon the mercy of Christ. It's the falling and resting upon him. And when you understand your identity is in Christ, then this can free us from our anxieties. Because no longer do I have to justify my existence. I am in Christ. Therefore, I am significant. I'm not significant because of the great things I can accomplish in the name of Christ. I am in Christ. Did, you, did, I, did I tell you who he is? He's the one who died in the place of sinners, who was raised from the dead, who reigns in heaven and is coming again. The, the whole of history traces its, its line from, from his beginning as, as the one who created everything through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. This, this is what gives my life meaning not what I can accomplish for him. It means you don't have to justify your your existence, your continued value and worth based on what you can do. You can just stop and say, 
I belong to Jesus. And so this today is good news for you if you've never put your trust in Christ before. When you hear who Jesus is and what he has done, then then you're called to believe in him, to repent, to, 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 to change that fundamental orientation of your life, to say, I'm not going to chase after the things of the world, but I will follow after Jesus Christ. It means to stop trusting yourself, to trust him alone. But this is also good news for you if you are trying to follow Christ in your own strength. Stop. Stop running. Find your hope in Christ. Believe Christ has done everything you need. So when you, by faith, are united to Christ, everything that was true of him becomes true of you. Look look at the way that, that Paul describes it. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. He tells us in verse 3, for you died. Now, obviously, he's not writing a, a letter that's to be read in a cemetery. He doesn't think they have physically died, but he's saying spiritually, you died to your old self. You died to the ways of this world. In the death of Christ, you died to sin. But you have been raised with Christ. And then he says, for, for you, verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden with Christ. Now that could mean, I mean, grammatically. Grammatically, this could mean that it's hidden from the sight of others. You know, it's, it's when, you, when you, you ever play hide-and-seek with a, a little kid, and they can't see you, therefore they're hidden, right? But this, this is when that kid finds a great spot, when an older sibling pulls out a drawer and then pushes the little kid like all the way in. And you as a parent then panic when you can't find this kid for an hour. But it could mean grammatically that you are hidden from sight. As if when you believe in Christ that that other people won't notice it. But but I don't think that's what, what Paul means here. I mean, first of all, he expects the believers in Colossae to proclaim the gospel. In chapter 4, he'll say that, that proclaim the gospel. He, he says, pray for me as I proclaim the gospel. And then he tells them, be, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. So people should see that you've become a Christian. I, I think what he's saying here is he's, he's saying that you are hidden, you are protected in a safe place by Jesus. That to be hidden with Christ means there is nothing that can harm you because you're safe with him. Like, like a squirrel hiding nuts for the winter, except, well, squirrels sometimes forget where they hide the nuts. You won't be forgotten because we know where you are. We know where you are hidden. You are hidden with Christ in God. You can't be lost. You are with Christ. Where is Christ? We know exactly where he is, at the right hand of God in heaven. He is coming again. He will appear. And at his appearance, you, verse 4, will also appear with him in glory. And so everything that is true, past, present, and future about Christ, is now true for you if you have put your trust in him. Who you are is because of what Jesus has done. Where you are going depends on what Jesus will do. That that he reigns in heaven, and so you are hidden with him in heaven. You are protected by God because of Christ. 
And then when Jesus comes again, you will be with him in glory. And so what is true for Christ, that he died, that he was raised, that he's at the right hand, that he will appear again, is true for you. You died to your sins. You have been raised in new resurrection, spiritual life. You are protected and hidden, and you will be revealed with Christ again in glory. So when you understand that your identity is found in Christ, then you are free from the tyranny of trying to prove your value and worth to yourself or to others. You're free from the powers of this world. You you are not to set your mind, set your affections, set your desires, set your will on earthly things. You've been freed from the patterns of this world. You are free now to live for Christ. Not that that what you do will gain you Christ. You already belong to him. You died with him. You have been raised with him. You are hidden with him. You are protected by Christ. You are free to live for Christ because of what he has already done for you. And so as you set your mind on Christ, it it actually then turns your attention away from the desires of this world. Not that you don't pursue the the ordinary patterns of of life. Not that you you don't care and love for the people around you. That's, That's not what earthly things means. Earthly things means selfish desires. But as you set your mind on things above, as you glory in Christ, then, well, first of all, your attention is no longer on the things of this world. As you turn your eyes to Jesus, everything, that old hymn writer says, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Because all you see is the glory of Jesus, the one who died, who's been raised, who reigns, who is coming again. That's the truth that matters most to you. And and one pastor says, we cannot set our minds on Christ and sin at the same time. And so when we set our minds on Christ, we turn from sin. We are freed from sin to follow after Jesus Christ. But but notice that, that when Paul describes who Christ is and what he has done, He doesn't just explain that we get the benefits of what Christ has done. We do get that. It's true. You died with Christ, and so you were set free from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ has been raised, so you've been given new spiritual life. Jesus is the king who reigns at the right hand of of God in heaven, so you are protected until the very end. Jesus is coming again, so you will be with him in glory. Yes, you gain all of the benefits of belonging to Christ. But notice what Paul says in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So yes, we gain the benefits of belonging to Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of life everlasting, glory in the kingdom of God that will last forever, but we gain more than that. We gain Jesus Christ himself. The reason that you're guaranteed to be there in glory is because you are with Jesus. He is is beside you. He is within you. He is the one whose life gives you life. His life defines who you are. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. We belong to Christ. We have fellowship with Christ. And so when you feel alone... You have Christ. When you feel hope slipping away, 
you are hidden with Christ. When you face trial and sorrow, you belong to Christ. When you stare down temptation, you are with Christ. My life is not defined by me. I don't set the framework. I don't set the standards. I am made by God, and by God's grace, I am found in Christ, who I really am is in Christ. Have you ever had somebody come to you with a, with sort of a start and an apology that says something like, that wasn't really me, like that's not who I really am. And you want to say, yes it is. You said it and you did it. So that was you. I mean, wait, are you telling me there was an imposter? Are you telling me you have an identical twin I've never met? No, it was really you. But, but more than that, deeper than that, when you are found in Christ, you actually, you actually, that's not who I really am. At the core of who I am meant to be. Yes, that is me in my sin rebelling against the grace of God. But who I am really meant to be is in Christ. Christ is your life. You died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are protected by Christ. Christ, who is your life, will appear again in glory. You are in Christ. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would give us hope and confidence in your word, that we would trust in the goodness of this gospel announced to us, Lord, I pray for those who, who today wrestle with, with this, these claims of Christ, that you would give them now the faith to believe, the confidence in your word, that they would turn from sin and trust in Jesus alone. But Lord, do that work in those of us who, who follow after Jesus. Lord, let us stop trusting in ourselves. Let us let us put our hope in Jesus so that we can be set free, set free from sin and set free for gospel obedience in joy and gratitude. Lord, do that work in our hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, who is our life. Amen.